0: Uh, areas to talk about today, uh, well, before I get there, <clears throat> I wasn't scheduled to speak today. We had a, a different schedule, <clears throat> but both those who were scheduled to speak were not feeling well and uh, or had bad attitudes or something. Uh, anyway, uh, it fell to me to speak today, and I'm not feeling my very best, but uh, I think I can make it through. So that's, I just want you to know why I'm here instead of somebody else you may have been expecting. <coughs> Excuse me. But I considered uh, a couple, three different possibilities of what to speak about, and settled on one because I think it's timely, and that is that we have finished the Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day, and now we have about six months before we begin again the annual rehearsal of God's plan of salvation. So having completed this annual uh, both celebration and renewal and follow through an understanding of God's holy days and his plan of salvation, thought it might be a good time to take stock, to see where we are, uh, to see what we need to be doing, to see what is going on in the world and what God has to say about it in several different scriptures, because I think we are at a fairly pivotal time, and this is a time between Feast of Tabernacles and Passover, when the winter hits, the people can get a bit despondent, perhaps discouraged and frustrated uh, by life itself and by ourselves, and so on and so forth. So even the nation of Israel around us has a State of the Union <coughs> speech in January, <coughs> and I think after the Peace of Tabernacles is a good time to consider the state we find ourselves in. Let's begin in Jeremiah 8. <coughs> Jeremiah, here in the first few chapters of his book, is discussing the various evils in our land of Israel, and in the church itself, because we understand that these prophecies apply first to the nations of Israel, and secondarily to the church as spiritual Israel. <clears throat> so when they were written, they had physical Israel first and foremost, but then as the church developed over time, beginning in the New Testament, uh, there came a, another fulfillment, that began to kick in and that shows the marvelous capacity of God to know the complexity of things that would go on and that the things that were beginning to transpire in the nation would also transpire in the church and the fate would be essentially the same. What a marvelous creator we have who knows the end from the beginning, who knows where we are, who we are, where we would be, and what we would be doing at this time. Never underestimate the capacities and abilities of God to know everything that is happening, and to even tell you ahead of time how it is going to be. So considering what Jeremiah is saying here about the difficulties, I want to go down to Jeremiah 8 and then verse 18. Let's consider ourselves and let's consider the nation both. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. When I would try to find comfort, when I would seek ease and peace of mind, which we would all like to have, would we not? What, what our nation would like to have, we're seeing more turmoil, more fraud, more deceit more lying. We're seeing our country falling apart in front of our very eyes even as we see the church falling apart. So whether you are a part of this nation or whether you are a part of the nation and the church, the feelings here are about the same. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, against trouble, my heart is faint in me. I see no real answer <coughs> to the dilemmas that face us Behold, the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Now, we can cry out because of the nations that are beginning to assemble into a coalition against America, and there is a currency war going on. We may discuss a little more later. There are serious problems brewing on the international scene, and We have our brethren in far countries, and we would like to see here and together and living in peace and prosperity before God. So both dynamics are here. Is not the eternal in Zion? Isn't God with us? Zion, we know, is the church. It also is a symbol of greater Israel, but more specifically, the church, which will be delivered first. Where's God in the church? Is not her king in her? Isn't he here? He says in Zechariah 2, verses 7 and 10, that he will come and dwell among us. And that's premillennial. Whether it is visibly or just more with us, we do not yet fully know. Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? We live in a culture and society that has all kinds of gods, contrary to the true God, and strange vanities, egos, and pride among us. And it affects you and me as well. Then he makes an interesting statement. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. I think of no better time to read this than right after the feast symbolizing the fall harvest, the end of summer, and we are not saved. We're still looking for comfort, we're still looking for peace, and all around us despair and difficulty. So this is, I think, a very fitting time to consider what Jeremiah has to say here. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. Jeremiah 50, or 51, I think it's 50, says that if we could help this nation, we would. We love our country. We hate to see it going through what it's going through. And yet we know it's inevitable, it has to come, the destruction is near, and that's what Jeremiah 50 and 51 are talking about. So there's nothing we can do, and there's really nothing we can do for the church, is there? All we can do is try to straighten ourselves out and hurt for all those we know who do not know what's happening. I am black. That means famine, pestilence. We know Joel. I mean, uh, Amos says there will be a famine of the word, and famine causes all kinds of health problems, and the Bible uses... This is a symbolism of famine, disease, and pestilence. So we are a nation that is diseased, and we are a church that is diseased. Astonishment has taken hold on me. Lack of comprehension, in other words. Lack of understanding of what's going on uh, is rife in the world, in the nation, and in the church. People are confused in the church, and they're getting more and more so in the nation. And the recent elections show that they're seeking some kind of a change. The change that we got in 08 was not a change that has been beneficial or what we thought had been promised. Those who planned that had change in mind. Yes, they did. And they are selling us out. Jeremiah 50 also says that our leader has given his hand I will sell you out and shook hands on it. And that's the change that we're seeing. We're being sold out as we sit here. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no position there? We would hope for healing. We would hope for blessing. So we say, where is this? So many scriptures indicate that it will happen. And yet here we sit... After the feast, harvest is passed, the summer's ended, and no healing in particular that you could point to. A little intervention, maybe, but not a whole lot. Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why is it this way? Oh, that my head were water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. As much as I'm emotionally distraught and upset, it'd be a good thing if my whole head were just water so I could cry more. That I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. I'm out of tears. I don't have enough water to cry enough to cover the trouble that is in me. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men a place to go for safety, for peace from the trouble that is coming. That I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. We have a nation that looks upon marriage as antiquated. Fornication, adultery is rife. It's everywhere, all around us. It has become the American way of life. We physically commit fornication and adultery, and we also have adultery and fornication with the nations of this world in political treaties with them instead of a treaty with God. So it's on a physical and a spiritual level that we are in this condition. An assembly of treacherous men. Don't we have men who were treacherous, who destroyed the church? And we have men in our government today who are traitors. They are treacherous. They are lying frauds, who claim they are trying to help and save our nation while they are behind the scenes destroying it very rapidly. And they bend their tongues like their bow. Crooked tongues. Liars. They bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth. That is true both in the church and in the nation. Our people, our leaders, will not tell us the truth. They lie to us constantly. They will not face the truth of what is happening to us. Now, as I read this, and we Consider these things. Let's understand what's going on. (coughs) There is a plot to destroy America. There is a plan in place to cause us to be destroyed. There is a hate among the nations of the world for Anglo-Saxons in particular. Now, we have seen in the last few days several bombs that have made it onto airplanes, and amidst this we have reports, speculation perhaps, that there is a false flag event that will occur very soon that may cause more war, more strife, and those who are speculating that say it is coming very soon, and they even mention that the President and a great entourage, most of the White House staff and a great number of people in government are now over in Asia. There has been speculation about the cost of this. Uh, apparently they have 26 uh, military ships who are there as a backup. I think something like 26 airplanes went. They have, according to a report in the news, saved, or reserved, what, 475, no, 875 rooms in the five-star hotel where the terrorist attack in India occurred, what was it, a couple years ago. Tremendous expense, up to 3,000 people on that trip. America is making a great show of wealth, of power, And this tour will go through several nations of Asia, culminating in the G20 meeting. Isn't it interesting that we understand the dynamics of how our leadership is traitorous, is pulling us under and selling us out, and at the same time, on the surface, you have this great show of political power, of money and military might. Well, probably in those meetings, and it would not surprise me to not learn this later, secret deals are being made to help the Asians and the rest of the world destroy America. Can we believe that we have that kind of so-called leadership in this country? Well, what does Scripture say? God said he would put over the nations the basest of men. And I believe that he has done exactly what he said. He has said that the hammer of the whole earth, and that can only be us, will be destroyed. And those who made the merchants rich in Revelation 18 will be destroyed. And the merchants will cry on their ships because their wealth has been destroyed. The Bible is full of information about this. It is happening as we sit here. Now, the dot-com bubble was big and created problems. Then they created this housing bubble by giving almost free credit to anybody and everybody. They built this up on purpose until it got thinner and thinner and finally broke. Now our houses are being taken away, as Isaiah 5 says, and as several other scriptures indicate. We'll no longer be able to live in our houses, they will be taken away. We're in the midst of that prophecy today, as we consider these scriptures. Now they are building the hugest bubble that has ever been. I'm going to call this the dollar bubble, just to keep it simple. We are a nation that is absolutely bankrupt. We are trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. They estimate 40 to 65 of immediate debt. And then over $400 trillion in unfunded Social Security, Medicare payments, and an untold number of trillions and all of the financial instruments that they created, which were fraudulent, and nobody even knows who owns them. Hundreds of trillions of dollars of debt that's out there. Now, the world has been dependent upon America as consumers. They have been dependent upon us, in some ways, for military. They have been dependent upon us for billions of dollars of foreign aid. Since 1913, and the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde fiat American currency domination began, they have been destroying our nation from the inside out. Now this worsened in 1945 when the UN was born. They tried a League of Nations earlier and it failed. But the United Nations was born in 1945. Keep that in mind. And there was a plot formed then for world domination of the New World Order, and that was when it was formally introduced. It had been around for a long, long time. But the agreements and treaties were made behind the scenes, and we do not even know what was agreed to that was not made public. But we are beginning to see what was agreed to, aren't we, and what is going on. Now, because we were the world currency, everyone depended on the U.S. dollar. And now as they see it weakening, and they see our country being destroyed from the inside out, they are fearful. They have been reluctant to give up the dollar because that was the world currency. They depended on it. They had to have it. They wanted it. So they have depended on it up till now. They were, I can't live without it. Now there is a sea change, a transition going on. They have reached the point, they are beginning to say, I cannot live with it. And they are doing their best to get rid of all the dollars they have, Nobody wants them anymore. And at the same time, we, as a people, a government, are suddenly printing hundreds of billions more of them. Trillions were created over the last three years. And now they are creating another QE2, they call it, a quantitative easing, which simply means increasing the amount of dollars and causing inflation to occur so that everything costs more. But you have more of these dollars to pay your debts off with. It is doomed to failure. It is what I term a dollar bubble. And the more dollars we print, and the weaker it gets, and the dollar is going down in value against other currencies in the world, the euro and the renminbi and various ones, the yen. It's going down in value. So even as it goes down... We create more and more of them. And what this is creating is a huge bubble of nothingness. And as it gets thinner and thinner, soon it is going to pop. If you think the dot-com and the housing bubble was a big deal, wait until the dollar bubble bursts. And they will flee the dollar like rats from a sinking ship. And they will cry because their wealth is destroyed. But this is all planned ahead of time to destroy us. Let's go to the Bible now. I want to go back to Genesis 27. I'm describing here in a few minutes an overview of what's happening in our country And there's a great deal of detail that can be added to that, but I wanted to just rehearse for a moment where we are at the moment. Our leadership is overseas selling us out. The governments of the world are beginning to say we have to do something about this. They want a new world currency. And the Bible says that they will have just that. And you cannot buy or sell without that mark on you. So, all the things we see happening, God knew ahead of time. To me, that's comforting and encouraging. He knows what's happening, he knows how bad it is, and he has the solutions. But we want to go back here in Genesis 27 to see how this got set up. Now, you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, and how Jacob had subterfuge and lying, and as a result, got the birthright. And Esau was left out in the cold and despised his birthright, sold it cheaply, and then he regretted horribly what he had done. But it was a faith comply that had been done. Couldn't do anything about it. Verse 38, Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father, just to Jacob? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. He realized what he had sold off so cheaply. Now, there is a lesson there for us, if you go to the book of Hebrews, and it tells us not to be like Esau, not to let our inheritance get away from us. And he's writing that in terms of the New Testament church and how easy it would be to get hung up in this world and what's going on and let our spiritual, eternal inheritance slip away from us. He said, do not be that way. So this story back here has a great deal of significance for us spiritually and in terms of our nation as a whole. And Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, here's what I have left to give you. Your dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the view of heaven from above. Jacob's going to have the blessings, but you're going to be able to live around and among where the fatness, the money, the wealth is. It won't be yours until a certain point, but you will dwell there. You'll be in the money, and by your sword shall you live and shall serve your brother So Esau, or Edom, was to be subservient to Jacob. Now we are Jacob. Today we have mostly Edomites living in the nation of Israel. We have a great number of them in New York and Miami and San Francisco, Los Angeles and London and various other places. And they are in and among the richest bankers and industrialists and corporatists in the world. Now, they do not own the wealth of this nation, but they control the money through the Federal Reserve, which isn't federal, it's a private corporation, controlled by the Rothschilds, by the uh, Rockefellers, and others. So, if you want to look in the seat of money today, they are there. And they have been embattled and barely survived through the years, because of the sword. They are being threatened right now by Iran and others with being wiped off the face of the earth as a country. And here's an interesting thing that Jacob, or that uh, Isaac said. And it shall come to pass when you shall have the dominion, when they take charge and hold the reins of power, which they do now have, we are in the end time, that you shall break his yoke from off your neck. Esau is going to break the yoke of Jacob. They are finally going to get the upper hand. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand, Then I will slay my brother Jacob. So he had deep anger and vengeance in his heart. And he said, after Jacob dies, I will kill Jacob. Now, that was his attitude, and it has been the attitude of his progeny ever since. It is their attitude today. Now, notice that Isaac had said, It shall come to pass. This was way down the road. Looking at all the scriptures, we understand that it is at the end time. That Jacob will be dominated and destroyed by Esau. Now, we will not go to the book of Obadiah, which picks this story up and shows that they will indeed have that dominance, and certainly Obadiah is an end time book. And it says then that they will laugh at our calamity. And then God will deal with them because Jacob is chosen of God as Israel. So that is God's prediction of what will happen. Now I want to go at this point to the book of Isaiah because much is said here that is important for you and me to grasp and to understand. Let's go back toward the beginning of the book of Isaiah Now, it's very clear as he opens this book that God is upset, I think, again, both with the nation and with the church, and he talks about all the various kinds of evil that are among us, and he says in chapter 2, verse 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days... That the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. So God is going to begin something in the mountains and the hills, and it is ultimately going to be the beginning of the kingdom of God, and peoples will then flow to it. So that's the way this thing is going to turn out, and how Christ will return, and they'll beat their swords into plowshares and so on. And then he tells his people in verse 10, Enter into the rock and hide you in the dust for fear of the eternal and for the glory of his majesty. So people are going to hide in the rocks for fear of God. He tells us he is going to take us into the rocks of the mountains as a place of refuge. So hiding in the rocks is something that both the people of this nation will do for fear of God, and what we will do in obedience to and protection by God. In chapter 3, it talks about the daughters of Zion, about the way they dress, the way they show themselves, the way they tinkle about on high heels, and so on and so forth. And then it talks in verse 25, of men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in the war. And her gates shall lament and mourn, and she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Now that is true of our nation, and it is true of the daughters of the church, who all claim to be wonderful, and are going to be shown not to be so wonderful, and will sit in the dust, except one that God will choose to set an example. I would like for us to be counted among those, and I hope that we can be, and a lot of that's up to us. In that day, chapter 4, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. Now, we know that in Revelation 2 and 3, the church is broken down into seven divisions, Zechariah 4 talks about how the two witnesses will give oil to all seven of the churches. So I think that this fits that story precisely, that of the seven divisions of the church, and God, there are certainly far more than that now, three, four hundred or more divisions, probably much more really when you count families and two or three families together. But they come under seven general attitudes and approaches and have those seven faults as well as uh, the good side. But God is going to boil it down to one man, bell, and all seven will take hold, saying, we need your name. That's only going to be 10%, as we'll see a little later on. says he'll wash away, verse 4, the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So he's going to make decisions and he's going to bring great pressure to straighten things out. And the eternal will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For then all the glory shall be a defense. Now he tells us in Zechariah 2 that there will be villages built with much men and cattle and that God will be a wall of fire around and a covert from the heat from above. That is echoed right here. Now when Christ and the Father return at the beginning of the millennium in the great new heavens and new earth, it says there won't be light of the sun or the moon, but the Father and the Son will be the light thereof. So here you have a light, before that actually happens. A shining of a flaming fire by night. And it will be there for defense, to protect. So this echoes Zechariah 2, and it has to be talking of that time when the church and the two witnesses come together to build God's temple before the millennium, before Christ returns. Then in chapter 5, he talks about his vineyard and how he gave it everything that it needed and yet it didn't, didn't produce what he wanted it to produce, the wrong kind of fruits. So he talks about how he will tread it down, and how the feasts are not what he wants, their houses will be desolate in verse 9, even great and fair, like mansions, if you will, without inhabitants. So this is a pretty dire prophecy through this section about what is going on. And which we can look around now and see with our very own eyes, this is not a prophecy of the distant future, but it is a prophecy of now. Some of you who are in the building business know that this is happening in a very acute way. Because there just isn't as much work out there as there was when money was flowing freely and the dollar or the uh, housing bubble was in progress of being blown up. All kinds of work. Now, those people control those assets, those houses, those commercial buildings. The dollar won't be any worth anything, but they hold the mortgages and the control of those things. And they'll kick us out and put their own people there. Well, we could go on with that. He said in verse 9 of chapter 6, well, let's, let's go back to, to chapter 6 a little earlier in there, because here's the description of God beginning to t- truly take charge. He decries the way things are up to the beginning of chapter 6, and then here we see God beginning in, to intervene. This is the same thing we see in Zechariah 2, where it says, Arise, begin to take charge, to do your great work. I don't remember the exact phrasing there, but that's what it's saying in the end of Zechariah 2. It's time for you to go to work, O Lord. So, with all of this death and destruction prophesied, and God lamenting the way that we are, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Eternal sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He says he will come and dwell in the temple once it's built at the end time. Above it stood the seraphim, the wings, and so on. Verse 3, cried one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the eternal of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he is going to come, and he is going to fill Ezekiel's temple that I believe has to be built, and that then will spread once he takes charge of not just the church, but the whole earth. Verse 5, uh, Isaiah saw this vision, and it really scared him. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. I myself have problems, and everybody around me has them too. For my eyes have seen the King, the Eternal of hosts. He saw what is going to be coming soon to this earth that you and I will witness. He saw it only in vision. But we're here to live it. We're here to see it. What he saw in vision, we will experience. Then flew one of the seraphim, me having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and he said, and he laid it upon my mouth, and said, Lo, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. So the altar of the sacrifice of Christ will be made available to us and our sin will be removed. Now keep in mind that Isaiah forty begins with a voice crying in the wilderness and shows then leading up to the time a Cyrus in the end time will be shown some hidden treasures and and riches of dark places and so on. But just prior to that in Isaiah 44 it talks about how in a day our Sins will be removed like a cloud. So several times the prophecy is made that we, who are nothing and who are still sinful about what we ought to be, are going to have the shame of Laodicea, the shame of our thoughts and our actions and our deeds removed in the blood of Christ. We will be forgiven if we have repented and are doing what God wants us to be doing. Also I heard the voice of the Eternal saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? God uses human representatives. So Isaiah said, I'm not qualified. I have unclean lips. I'm not what I ought to be, and the people around me aren't either. But so that the angel asked the question, Who is going to go tell this? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And the angel said, Go and tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. So he sent Isaiah to tell the people then of a coming destruction, and to record it for those in the last days, as we read a little earlier in the, chap- in the book, because this would happen again. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and convert, and be healed. There is always the danger, if people understood everything that's going on, be it the church or be it the nation, that they would then have to be judged for not following through on what they knew. So God said, they're deceived. They have Blind eyes and deaf ears. The things we are talking about today, the church, and certainly the nation, have no comprehension of. They just don't get it. How blessed we are to be able to come back here and read this story about us, not just Israel, and what part we play. Then said I, Lord, how long... It always is a question, isn't it? Habakkuk had the same question. How long, O Lord, he said. And after God worked on him a little bit, he said, I think I'll just sit here on my watch and wait and see. But it came to Isaiah's mind. How long? As it does ours. How long must we wait? And he answered. Okay, here's your answer. until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without men, and the land be utterly desolate. God is going to truly intervene when we see our cities wasted, our houses empty, and the land made a desolation. Now that could apply to the nation as a whole, now we have already seen the church in this condition, have we not? Isn't the church pretty well desolated? Aren't the cities wasted without inhabitants? You know, we used to have huge congregations in New York and Chicago and Dallas and L.A. and all over the country, desolate now, nothing left. A few scattered people here and there still trying to do what's right. So it's already happened spiritually with the church, and our wait is almost over. Now, the wait of the nation is almost over as well, but we have not yet seen the desolation of the physical cities and the desolate land. So our blessing is near to come, and theirs is yet a short while off. We, if we obey, are going to be blessed first, even as we were destroyed first, and then they will be blessed after they are destroyed as a nation as well. So everything is happening right on schedule. Verse 12, And the Eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. There's been a great forsaking of God in the church, And it is a great forsaking of everything good and right in the land. But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return. God is going to save his tenth of those who will obey him and do what he says. Both of the church, because we see a remnant will return to build the temple in Haggai and other places, and of the land, because he will save almost ten percent to begin the millennium, as a seed for a new Israel, who will then obey God. So it applies both ways here. A tenth will return and shall be eaten as a a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. It's not like a lettuce or okra plant that lives in the summer and dies, but he says Israel will then be like oak trees, They live for decades and decades, so he's showing a long-term prophecy of blessing here. Now we're getting down to where I, with the background, wanted to go to consider some possibilities and where we really are. Chapter 7, I'm not going to read all of this, but there was a conspiracy between Ephraim and Syria, which might be some of the Arab peoples. I don't know exactly how to fit this together today and what players are there. Now remember that we do not know all of the treaties that were made which were designed to bring this nation down in 1945 at the United Nations and its beginning. We do not know who all is allied with whom behind the scenes. I don't know whether this prophecy is destined to turn out in the end time exactly the same. Because many of the prophecies had a certain fulfillment in the past with a fulfillment in the future, and sometimes all the details are not exactly the same. But suffice it to say here, until this picture becomes totally clear, and that may not come until the aftermath, that there is a conspiracy going on, and that there are treaties that have been made, and it has to do with Israel. Ephraim represented the ten northern tribes, and at that time the house of David was in charge of Judah, uh, Levi and Simeon, that part of the... House of Israel. So, it is a conspiracy within Israel, and it includes probably the Arabic peoples, Ishmael, if you will, which could include not only the Arabs as we know them, but perhaps even Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, who knows how wide this prophecy regarding Syria and that people over there extends. I do not know that. But I do know that there is a growing hatred for America in the Islamic world. It is spreading, and it is becoming more virulent as each day goes by. Now let's consider Daniel 8, which I think indicates that we as the goat from the West will fly without touching the ground, airborne military, and destroy the first horn of the goat from uh, Mesopotamia. And after we destroy the first horn, which I think was Iraq, we will destroy the horn of the other, which is Iran. And after we destroy Iran, we will have our horn broken. Now I may not be looking at that right, but it seems here that there is some kind of a coalition between and within Israel, the Ten Nations, and Judah with Syria or perhaps Islam involved. Islam might be all those peoples of Islam, whether or not they are Arabic strictly in origin or not. It is a large movement in any case. <coughs> and there is where the so-called war on terror is uh, pointed It's the target. Anyway, however this may exactly come down, there are some specifics to this that I think we should pay heed to. Notice in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. <coughs> and within three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. So, however this conspiracy has been put together, was in the past and is now, it will result in the destruction of Ephraim, which I believe is this country. We'll not go through that. I've done sermons showing how the prophecies for Ephraim can only apply to this nation, not to Great Britain. That is, I believe, Manasseh. And on top of that, all the prophecies in Revelation 18, Jeremiah 50 and 51 can only apply to this nation, and it is this nation that the beast and false prophet are going to destroy. This woman, this whore of Israel, as described in Ezekiel 16, not the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church will probably be part and parcel with the New World Order and accept the new religion and the new leadership. They will not be... Why would Satan destroy the Catholic Church? It's in his pocket! It's this nation that stands between the new world order, our sovereignty, and what they wish to do. We are the target of the world at this point. Our dollar is what has held it up and they've depended on, and now they're realizing they cannot depend upon it, and it will be destroyed, and they're getting rid of it as fast as they possibly can. So all these prophecies come together and show that it is this nation that is going down. We're the leader. We're the, the Ephraim that got double portion. Sure, is uh, Great Britain prospered for a while. But since the American Revolutionary War, where we declared independence from our brother Manasseh, we have had the ascendancy in the world. So the end-time prophecies about Ephraim getting a double portion of the inheritance and in God delineating us as the firstborn have come to pass. Now, those prophecies in Jeremiah 50:51, 50, Revelation 18, do not apply to Great Britain. It is a has-been over the hill, and the sun has set on the British Empire. It is our sun that is currently setting, and this will bring an end to the order of the world as it has been. Now, he says specifically that within 65 years we will be broken that we be not a people. Sixty-five years from what? When was this conspiracy formally hatched? 1945. 2010 is 65 years from 1945. Now, is that the number that God is using here? I have looked at some things, and the only other dates from that era that seem to be somewhat important would be the founding of Ambassador College in 1947 and the beginning of the real growth of God's work, and then in 1948 the creation of the current country of Israel which is not Israel at all, but which is Edomites primarily. Now, there was a conspiracy hatched at the beginning of the United Nations, and it has to do with our destruction. Ambassador College was established to further the work of God to increase it, and not long after that, men came in who sought to destroy it. So the dates are pretty close. I'm not trying to predict anything here. But if our government is currently selling us out in Asia, as they have been over the last months and few years, and maybe even more dynamically today as we consider this, is the imminent destruction soon? Now, I don't know how God counts this year, whether he ends it December 31st, or whether he is, in his wisdom, considering it the beginning of the year in April, his holy year, I do not know. But it is very possible between now that between now and Passover season, our nation would go under if 1945 is the starting date of this prophecy. I'm not saying it is. I don't know that for sure. But when you look back about 65 years, and it is seems ironic to me that over the last two or three weeks, I've read different articles on the Internet, and with our coming demise and the predictions of it by people out in the world, they mention 1945 as the singular date from which they're considering this. In other words, they think that the conspiracy that took birth in 1945 in a formal agreement was the beginning of the end for our nation. Ironically, God says that from the time of a conspiracy that would occur within 65 years, and I'm not sure about the word within here, it might be in or at 65 years, right around 65 years, we would not be here as a nation, as a people, anymore. That is a serious consideration. Who knows what will come between now the end of the feast festival season when the summer is past and the harvest is done and we have not been saved and there is no balm in Gilead. Who will be valiant for the truth? Who will stand up for God? Who will quit lying and committing adultery and fornication with this world? and repent and turn to God? That is the question. Let's read on. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Rimaliah's son. Now, Samaria was the capital at that time of the northern tribes, just as Jerusalem was of Judah. So he says... Of this prophecy here, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established, or as my margin says, do you not believe it? Uh, it is because you are not stable. You don't understand. You don't have yourself stabilized by the word of God and belief in God. So this is a prophecy sure to come to pass. And those who are stable with God will recognize it. Moreover, the eternal spoke again to Ahaz. <coughs> saying, Ask you a sign of the eternal, your God. Remember, Isaiah said, how long will it be before this happens? Isn't it interesting The God immediately gives a prophecy in chapter 7 and 8, which give a time period, 65 years from a certain date. Was it the beginning of the UN? I don't know. But I think as I look at our nation and the world and how they're divorcing from the dollar bubble, the collapse cannot be too far away. So the numbers are just about right for this time of fulfillment to occur. And the conditions we see around us seem to be ripe for that as well. But God said, Ask a sign of the eternal your God. Are you stable? Do you believe it? Ask a sign. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt the eternal. He knew that you don't go around saying, God, show me. Give me a sign. And he said, Hear you now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Always wanting a sign, always wanting to know. And God is laying it out here for us. But God, whether we seek a sign or not, we might control those things. But God says, I'm going to give you one. Verse 14. Therefore the Eternal himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is a prophecy of Christ coming the first time, but it is also a prophecy of the end time, because that is the whole setting of this thing. So it was fulfilled in Christ and his physical birth. But it is also at the end of time when Ephraim will be destroyed. And that's what we're talking about here, is the destruction of Ephraim. So he gives a time period of 65 years from a certain date, and he gives then also a sign of Christ. I think it is interesting the things that we have learned and adopted and how they fit this prophecy. Call his name Emmanuel. Now we came to the knowledge that he who was called Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua, or however you put it in the Greek, the Hebrew, or in English, was what Mary and Joseph and people in general would call he who was born to be the Savior. But a prophecy is made there in Matthew that they someone in the future, they will, not now, you will call him Joshua, or some derivative thereof, but they will call him Emmanuel, a prophecy for the future. I find it interesting in the light of what is said after this, that that information, that prophecy, that name, would be brought to our attention in 2006, I believe it was. And we saw the value in it and adopted it. With the confusion over Jesus, Emmanuel becomes an easy solution, and it's an end-time prophecy as well. So we adopted it at that time. It says, verse 15, Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, we know from other scriptures, and I don't have time to go there and show this again today, that we are to create Christ in us, the hope of salvation, we are to walk in his steps, we are to think as he thought and say as he said, we are to be like him, we are to be little types of Christ or Emmanuel, to look as much like him as we possibly can, to mimic him. A virgin shall conceive. Now it talks about the competitive virgins of Israel, the church, those splinters from the church, which now are visible, vying over who would be the chosen one. And God chose in other places he will choose one to lead a renaissance, a remnant to come together and build a temple and fulfill the end time work of God with the fulfillment and the two witnesses going to the world. So a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Thankfully, we have been given this knowledge and this little church has conceived and brought forth that name as of 2006. And we are to learn to refuse the evil and choose the good. Is that not what we talk about almost continually? Refuse the evil and accept the good. And how hard it is for us to do that. But we're to learn that. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land you abhor shall be forsaken of both her kings. We're still learning, aren't we? to choose the good and refuse the evil? Have we learned it yet? Have you? Have I? Learned to choose only good and refuse all evil? No, we have not. We're still in the middle of learning that. We don't have it completely accomplished yet. I don't even know how close we are. Let's not go there. We'll keep harping on it. But before we learned that, This will happen, and the land will be forsaken of her kings, her leaders. Now, at that time, it was divided between Samaria and Judah. I don't know exactly what that portends for today. President and vice president, I don't know. The Eternal shall bring up up upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. So Assyria is going to lead a coalition against America. Psalm 83 and other places show that. And then Isaiah went into his wife in verse 8, in chapter 8 I mean, and she conceived and brought a son forth. And they said, before that child in verse four was able to cry, "My father and my mother," we would they would the nation would be taken away before the king of Assyria. So we have a 65 year delineation that God makes specifically. Then we have, from the time Emmanuel is born among us, a period of time that is very short, and before we have come to learn, as a child would, the difference between good and evil. Our nation will be destroyed. I submit to you that, in our experience at least, we learned this in late 2006, Feast of Tabernacles. That's four years ago. So from a time of conception through three some odd years of age, About age four, close to it, three to four, a child begins to learn the difference between good and evil. So I would say, based on the 65 years and upon the period of time that a child has to learn, we are very, very close to the fulfillment of this prophecy and that the Assyrian and the conspiracy that comes with him will destroy this country. When our currency is destroyed, we will be destroyed militarily. That's in Revelation 18. I don't have time to go there. But the destruction is both economically and physically, militarily. And then God throws out a challenge in chapter 8, verse 9. Associate yourselves, O you people... And you shall be broken in pieces. Give ear all of far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, and it shall come to nothing. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. That's what the name Emmanuel means. Those who use the name Emmanuel seem to come under the protection of God's umbrella a wall of fire, and a covert from the heat. So when the Assyrian comes, some will be protected from him, those whom God is with. Then he gives us some instruction, and this is important. We see horrible things happening in the world, and we've seen nothing yet. Very, very soon now, we're going to see far more horrible things begin to take place. When our dollar goes... Our economy goes, this nation will no longer exist as we have known it. And the cracks are getting bigger, the wall is leaning further out, and it will soon collapse. So, verse 11, For the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand, God shows his strong hand in this, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, Why do we keep saying, separate from the world, don't be like them? Do not fellowship with the world, do not make them your friends. He says it in so many words that he says if you're a friend of the world, you are not a friend of God. He makes it very, very clear in New Testament scriptures. And that's what he's emphasizing right here. Say you not a conspiracy to all them to whom this people shall say a conspiracy. Confederacy, conspiracy, it's the same thing. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. Now the nation has to be afraid, doesn't it? Because this is about to happen to them. The conspiracy will be led by the king of Assyria and a coalition of other nations. Psalm 83 gives a whole batch of them. And Esau will be in the middle of our calamity from an economic standpoint. And they're very quickly debasing and destroying our our dollar. Ben Bernanke and all those at the Fed are doing that as we speak. You know what's happening to a lot of this stimulus money that goes to these big banks? Are they lending it to the people anymore and building another housing bubble? No. We've got our zero interest rate in this country now. You know what they're doing with all that money? It's given to them by our government. They take it overseas and buy Australian bonds or euros, and they collect interest off it because they can't get any interest here. So all this stimulus money is going to overseas countries and stimulating them. Have you felt stimulated? There is a conspiracy to destroy us. And we're right in the middle of it. But we're not to fear it. Sanctify the eternal of hosts himself. And let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. Don't dread the new world order. Dread and fear God. He tells us over and over later in this book, and in Haggai, fear not, work hard, be of good courage, and be strong. We're not to fear their fear. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. So spiritual Israel and those who are faithful in it are going to be protected by God, but Both houses of Israel, Judah and Israel, are going to be destroyed. For a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah at that time. And many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. Now he's talking to us right here. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. We talk more about the law here than probably any organization on the face of this earth, the law of God, including all the churches. Now, is that saying a mouthful or not? And I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. We will look for him for deliverance not to Jacob, not to America's military or anything else of the kind. Behold, I and the children whom the Eternal has given me, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. Read Zechariah 3, and doesn't it say that right at the end time there will be men who will be there for signs and wonders? Isaiah says the same thing here. Can we be part of that? I certainly hope so. If we will pay attention to God's law and his testimony and what he has written and not worry about what this world is doing because he spells it out for us. And he tells us it's really, really near. If we don't quite get it about the UN in 1945 and 65 years later this happening, he gives us another sign. From the time Emmanuel is produced by one of the virgins of the church, by the time he would know to refuse evil from good, this thing will be upon us. Now this is not a specific prophecy that I'm saying, that it'll happen between now and Passover, or between now and January. I don't know that. I just know that it is getting very, very close, and as I observe what's happening in this nation and the world, not only does the Bible tell us what's going to happen, and approximately when here, we see it happening all around us. Now is the time to bind up the law and the testimony, and not be a part of this world or any part of it, and the things it's doing, to lie, adultery, all those things and be valiant for the truth.